My beloved brothers and sisters, I am grateful, as always, just to be with you and to be near you. These last six months, I have felt your love and support and prayers time and time again and wish to thank you most sincerely for them. General Conference is always a glorious event, but this conference is even more special because we celebrate the semicentennial of the organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The history of the Church is essentially the history of its individual members. One of the best ways to celebrate righteous history is to make more of it, make more righteous history. In this connection, you will recall that a year ago, you were called upon to stretch yourselves in further service included in the council given then was this succession that suggestion that each active member or family bring an individual or a family into the church by the time the April 1980 conference arrived. That conference is now here. Did we do it, or are we, some of us, still being neighbors as usual, not yet fully sharing the gospel with the friends and neighbors? As we speak of sharing the gospel, let me say that the First Presidency has just been advised by the missionary group of the church, the committee that as of last week, we had 30,004 full-time missionaries, that this is the largest number of missionaries ever in the history of the church. What a glorious work they are performing and what blessedness they bring into the lives of our father's children throughout the whole world who have who hearken to their message of joy and peace and salvation brethren and sisters there are more young men who can and should fill missions out in the mission field. Presently, they are, represent 79% of our total missionary force. We have not reached our potential. The young sisters serving represent 13% of the total. 8% of the total missionary force is represented by older couples. What a blessing their maturity and experience are wherever they serve. With the divine commission, we have to share the gospel with the entire world. We do indeed need many more missionaries. Remember that the field is white already to serve to the harvest. You will recall also our saying last year, the general conference, and in the seminaries for the regional representatives, that some further program ad ad adjustments were coming. We said at that time, we see ourselves as positioning our people so that the Latter-day Saints 
can give greater attention to family life, can focus more on certain simple basic things, can render more because of Christian service, and can have greater effectiveness in all of these things. Through the process of simplification, scheduling, proper priorities, and by honoring the priesthood line, those adjust adjustments, as you have recently learned now, have been made. We have come confidently that there is a re as a result, we will indeed see an upsurge in quality, family life, in Christian service, and in attendance at church meetings. We hope, for instance, that either before or after your serious series of Sunday meetings, depending upon your particular consolidated meeting schedule, you will do what the Savior asked the Nephite disciples to do. After, the, after he taught them, he asked them to go to their homes and to ponder and to pray over what was said. Let us keep that pattern in our minds. We also said last year that we have paused on some plateaus long enough, and then we can they gave an emphasis to councils, family councils, ward and state councils, and on through the area and church-wide councils. If you continue to observe carefully, you will see how all of these developments are pointing us in the direction as a people. We are being positioned to do more perfectly that which the Lord has given us to do. May we suggest that in our desire to enrich family life, in the church and to provide more time for Christian service, we make sure we do not overlook the tens of thousands of single Latter-day Saints who do not live in a traditional Latter-day Saint family setting. Please do not neglect these wonderful brothers and sisters. A year ago it was also observed that our success will largely be de determined on how faithfully we focus on living the gospel in the home. That is surely true and in like manner we will be spiritually successful to the degree that we are good neighbors and good friends to those in the household of faith and to our November non-member friends. With the announcement just made of the construction of seven new temples, there begins the most intensive period of uh, temple work building in the history of the church. The building of these temples must be accompanied by a strong emphasis on genealogical research on the part of all members of the church. We feel an urgency for this great work to be accomplished and encourage members to accept this responsibility. Members do so by writing their personal and family histories 
and participating in the name extraction program when called to do so, completing their four-generation research and then continuing their family research in order to redeem the, their kindred dead, to assist and give encouragement to this important work the genealogical department under the direction of the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve has organized another world conference on records to be held in Salt Lake City in August of this sesquicentennial year. Experts in family history from 30 countries will present four days of seminars to an audience of participants from around the world. We encourage all who can to attend. Brothers and sisters, we rejoice in the 15 decades of progress of this, the Lord's Church. We want to keep faith with that small but noble band of souls who assembled in the Peter Whitmer home 150 years ago for the purpose of formally organizing the church. We can keep faith by helping the church to grow in numbers and also in spirituality. We can count our growing membership. We can count the increasing numbers of stakes. These numbers thrill us as they indicate the progress we're making and remind us likewise that we must achieve in even more major ways in the years ahead. We can also tell that we are making progress by the attention we are getting from the adversary. Do not falter, for, nor be distressed when others misrepresent us, sometimes deliberately and sometimes in ignorance. This has been the lot of the Lord's people from the beginning and it will be no difference in our time. Brothers and sisters, pray for the critics of the church. Love your enemies, keep the faith, and stay on the straight and narrow path. Use wisdom and judgment in what you say and do, so that we do not give cause to others to hold the church or its people in disrepute. Do not be surprised or dismayed if trials and challenges come upon us. This work, which uh, Satan seeks us, seeks in vain to tear down, is that which God has placed on the earth to lift mankind up. I have lived for more than half the 150 years the restored church has been upon the earth in this last dispensation. I have witnessed its marvelous growth until it now is established in four corners of the earth as the prophet Joseph said. Our missionaries are going forth to different nations, and in Germany, Palestine, New Holland, Australia, the East Indies, and other places. The standards of truth, the standard has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, 
But the truth of God will go forth nobly, boldly, nobly and independent till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear till the purposes of God shall be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say the work is done. Let us then press on confidently in the work of the Lord as we look forward to the glorious years of promise ahead through our faithfulness and diligence. All that God has promised will be fulfilled. This is his work. The gospel is divine and true. And Christ, Jesus is the Christ and our Redeemer. May the Lord bless us all as we begin this great Centennial Conference of His Church. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are all so pleased to have President Kimball here looking so well and blessing us with his inspired counsel and direction. The world loves and honors our prophet, but the saints love him even more. Probably nowhere did Jesus find more needed rest and happy hours than in Bethany, in the quiet house of that family who, according to John, he loved. This small village with this very special family was just outside Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. The family evidently consisted of Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus. This quiet village, though only two miles from Jerusalem, was completely hidden from the bustle of the crowds and must have fed the soul of Jesus with love and peace. He must have felt welcome to share with this family's hospitality. They furnished not only comfort, but listened in deep conviction to his words. While Jesus was about his ministry, he received a solemn message that he whom he loved was sick. Lazarus was Jesus' intimate personal friend outside of the circle of the apostles. The scripture account tells us Jesus did not leave at once in response to the request because he was occupied with his important work, but he sent word that he would come. Four days later, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he stayed outside the little village, the record tells us, inasmuch as a large number of people, including distinguished Jews, had assembled to comfort and mourn with Mary and Martha. The sisters undoubtedly were disappointed in the Savior's delay. Lord, said Martha, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. The Savior's brief reply undoubtedly brought comfort to Martha and rings out in hope to all the world. Thy brother shall rise again. Martha, we assume, not thinking it possible for her brother to awaken from the sleep of death, answered, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Then Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Martha's deep faith supplied the answer, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which shall come into the world. Martha, after having borne this strong witness, found Mary, 
who, hurrying to Jesus in agony, as had Martha, said, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. These were his friends. These must have been moments of tender compassion for Jesus, undoubtedly deep emotion and wonderment for all who witnessed. Jesus said, Where have ye laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Now his enemies, some of whom were there, were asking whether he, who had opened the eyes of the blind, could not have saved his friend from death. Jesus surely knew their thoughts and would have heard their comments as he viewed the crowd with its hired mourners. The burial tomb, typical of the time, probably was a recess cut in the rock with a stone over the entrance. Jesus asked that the stone be removed. He stood at the entrance and called, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. There were many witnesses to this miracle who believed. But there were others who would carry an alarming story to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. As Jesus' fame grew, so grew the opposition from the chief priests apprehensive that he would undermine the established order. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve apostles and said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and to the scribes, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and on the third day he shall rise again. In an upper room, Jesus said to his, Jesus and his apostles were together for the last time. He taught them, saying, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after this manner also he took the cup, saying, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for for the remission of sins. Thus establishing the pattern for the sacrament as a sacred ordinance in his church. In Gethsemane, Jesus knelt in prayer and poured out his soul, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat were as great as drops of of blood falling to the ground. Following his betrayal, and when the morning was come, the chief priests and his enemies took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. He was taken to Calvary. At the third hour, they crucified Jesus, and with him they crucified two thieves. And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And after three days, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, the women came to the sepulcher with spices to anoint the body of Jesus. They were greeted by a young man in a long white garment who announced, He is not here. He is risen. Jesus showed himself first to Mary Magdalene and afterward to the apostles. For 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus remained with his disciples to instruct them more in the gospel. He told them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted his hands and blessed them. And while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven... As he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, which said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall soon come in like manner as ye have seen him now. We testify to all the world, as did the apostles of old, that this same Jesus, taken up into heaven, as men watched, will return, that he will return in, in power and great glory, attended by the hosts of heaven. At that day the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. But prior to that day, as foretold by the prophets, there must be a restoration of all things in the last days. The fullness of the gospel with all of its saving powers to be returned to earth. We proclaim with knowledge and power as witnesses of heavenly events that the final great restoration has taken place, that angelic ministers have been sent from heaven, that God's voice has been heard declaring its truth, that the gift of the Holy Ghost and the priesthood powers with its blessings and promises have again been given to man. I declare this testimony to all of you, and I thank God for his revelation to his prophets past and present, and for not leaving us alone. I declare to you, my friends and associates everywhere, my witness that God does live, that he made us in his own image. We welcome to their new responsibilities in the primary presidency, Duan Young and her counselors. We express commendation to President Naomi Shumway and her counselors. They have certainly established an enviable record of service on which to build. Thank you. Today I should like also to pay tribute to another primary worker, a noble woman, a personal friend, Laverne W. Parmalee. Sister Parmalee, as she was known by all who were acquainted with her in the church and out the, outside the church, gave her life, as Sister Shumway has given her life, and their counselors have given their lives in service to the children of the church, teaching them to walk in the light of the gospel of Christ. They taught these precious children not only to sing, but to believe and to live. I am a child of God. Lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way. Teach me all that I must do to live with him someday. Laverne Parmley, Naomi Shumway were great leaders of boys and spent much of their time preparing them to hold the Aaronic priesthood and to walk uprightly along the scouting trail. Part of that preparation consisted of encouraging them to commit to memory the Articles of Faith. Let's review just one or two of those articles that we might see the instruction they fostered. We believe in God the Eternal Father and in His Son Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost. We believe in being honest true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. Indeed, we may say that we follow the admonition of Paul, we believe all things, we hope all things, we have endured many things, and hope to be able to endure all things. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. Can you think of a better foundation? a more basic code of knowledge on which a boy could pattern his life than the Articles of Faith. These women have given greatly to millions of boys as they expected them to know and to live by this sacred code, the Articles of Faith. They literally fulfilled the admonition of the Savior, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Now there may be others who would say, what is the significance of the Aaronic priesthood, that all of this preparation should precede receiving it? Is it that important in the life of a boy? We know that the Aaronic priesthood is an appendage to the Melchizedek priesthood, 
and has power to administer in outward ordinances. We also know that John, John the Baptist, was a descendant of Aaron and held the keys of the Aaronic priesthood. Maybe if we reviewed a highlight or two from his life, we would better appreciate the priesthood, the keys of which he held. And to do so, may we go back thousands of miles away and countless years ago to that conquered country of Palestine. The setting was bleak, the time one of tumult. It was in the days of Herod, king of Judea, that there lived a righteous priest by the name of Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. Long years of yearning had yielded no reward. Zacharias and Elizabeth remained childless. Then came that day of days when, while he was in the temple, Zacharias beheld the angel of the Lord, even Gabriel, who gave to him the startling announcement, Zacharias, thy prayer hath been heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Elizabeth did conceive, and in due time brought forth a son, and in accordance with the instruction from the angel, his name was John. As with the Master Jesus Christ, so with the servant John. Precious little is known of the years of their youth. In fact, one sentence is all that we have that describes thirty years in the history of John from the time of his birth to his walk into the wilderness to begin his mortal ministry. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. His dress was like the prophets of old, a garment woven of camel's hair, his food, that which the desert would provide, locusts and wild honey, his message, Brief, faith, repentance, baptism by immersion, and the bestowal of the Holy Ghost by one whose power transcended his own. I am not the Christ, he said to a group of his loyal disciples, but am sent before him. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh who will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Then came that transcending event in John's ministry, the baptism of Jesus. The record indicates that the Master came down from Galilee to be baptized of John. Humbled of heart, contrite in spirit, John protested mildly and said, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus said, It becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. John joyfully consented. And Jesus, when he was baptized, came up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he beheld the Spirit of God descending like a dove, lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist bore a strong testimony of the Lord. Fearlessly, courageously, he said, Behold the Lamb of the God who taketh away the sin of the world. And Jesus later said of him, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. His earthly ministry, however, moved rapidly toward a close. At the beginning of it, you'll remember that he was critical of the worldliness the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now he had occasion to denounce the lust of a king. We know the result. That king's weakness, coupled with a woman's fury, resulted in the death of John. But the tomb in which that body was placed could not contain that body, and the sinful act of murder could not still that voice. For we declare to the world that at Harmony, Pennsylvania, 
On May 15, 1829, John, even John the Baptist, from the New Testament times, appeared as a resurrected personage to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. The angelic visitant averred that he was acting under the direction of Peter, James, and John, those ancient apostles who held the keys of the higher or Melchizedek priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was restored to earth, and because of that event, I've had the opportunity to hold the Aaronic priesthood, and millions of others have had the opportunity to hold that priesthood. I believe I learned the significance of it from my former state president, the late Paul C. Child. Approaching my 18th birthday, preparing to enter service in the Navy in World War II, I had been recommended to be ordained an elder. Mine was the responsibility to seek an interview from President Child. This was not as easy as it sounds. My stake president had as his hobby the scriptures of the Church. He loved them. He knew them. The problem was that he expected every 18-year-old boy to love them equally as much and know them equally as well. When I telephoned him for our appointment, having heard before of his interviews, our conversation went something like this. Hello, President Child, this is Brother Monson calling. As you know, I've been recommended to receive an interview that I might be ordained an elder. When would be an appropriate time to visit with you, President? President Child responded, Sunday would be fine. What time could you come, Brother Monson? Quickly my mind raced. I calculated that if his sacrament meeting were at 6 o'clock, I wanted minimum exposure of my scant scriptural knowledge to his review, and quickly I said, President Child, how would 5 p.m. be? And just as quickly he answered, Why, Brother Monson, that would not provide us sufficient time to peruse the scriptures. Could you come at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and be prepared to remain the day? And then, almost in parting, Owen, Brother Monson, would you bring with you your personal set of the standard works, the set that you have read and underlined and marked? I thought the week would never pass. Finally, Sunday came. A timid boy knocked on the door at Indiana Avenue. President Child made me welcome. I sat in that living room, and it seemed like the tick of the grandfather clock would drown out our conversation. In retrospect, I think it might have been my heart that was ticking. And then he looked me in the eye. He had piercing eyes. He said, Brother Monson, you are a priest in the Aaronic priesthood. Now, I knew that. And then he said, Have you ever had an angel minister to you? I said, No. Did you know that you are entitled to have an angel minister to you? Again, my answer was no. Then, quick as a flash, he said, Brother Monson, stand and repeat for memory the 13th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. I stood. I began. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of the Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys to the ministering of angels. Stop, he said. Never again forget that as a holder of the Aaronic priesthood, you are entitled to the ministering of angels. It was almost as though an angel were in that room. I have never forgotten that interview. I revere the priesthood of God. I have witnessed its power. I have felt its influence. I have observed its miracles. Let me mention just one. Almost 30 years ago, I knew a young man who was a priest in the Aaronic priesthood. His name was Robert. I was his bishop, and hence his quorum president. Robert had a speech impediment that made it absolutely overwhelmingly difficult for him to say more than two or three words without stammering, void of control. He would not look you in the eye 
would look down at the ground and would stammer any acknowledgement. His impediment was devastating. But one day, through an unusual set of circumstances, Robert accepted the assignment to perform the ordinance of baptism in the baptistry right here in the tabernacle on Temple Square, halfway knowing that he couldn't do it. I left my office and came over to the baptistry thinking that I perhaps would substitute for him. To my pleasant surprise, as I entered the baptistry, there in the appointed place sat Robert. He was dressed immaculately in white. I walked over and put my hand on his knee. It was quivering like a willow in the wind. I said, Robert, how do you feel? He looked down at the tile floor and said that he felt terrible, and he stuttered the word. I think we both offered a prayer, a silent prayer, and then we heard the clerk read these words, Nancy Ann MacArthur will now be baptized by Robert Williams, a priest. He squeezed my hand, stood up, walked over to the baptistry font, entered the font, and then took that precious little girl by the hand and led her into those waters which cleanse human lives and provide a spiritual rebirth. He looked up toward heaven. Then he raised his other arm to the square, and he said, Nancy Ann MacArthur, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And he baptized her. Not once did he stutter. Not once did he stammer. Not once did he hesitate. I had beheld a modern-day miracle. I hurried to the dressing room. I was so anxious to congratulate him. I embraced him, wet clothing and all. I said, Robert, we've seen a miracle today. I suppose I expected to hear that same uninterrupted flow of speech. But he looked at the tile floor, and he stuttered his acknowledgment. But to you today, I testify that when Robert acted in the authority of the Aaronic priesthood, he spoke with clarity, he spoke with conviction, he spoke with heavenly help. His was the legacy of John, even John the Baptist. And we hear his voice even today. It teaches humility. It prompts courage. It inspires faith. And my personal prayer is that we will be motivated by his mission, that we will be inspired by shall we say, his message, and that we indeed may be lifted by his life to a full appreciation of the Aaronic priesthood and its divine power. And this prayer I would ask in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. At the Samoa Area Conference in 1976, President Spencer W. Kimball said, Often when we have press conferences, the press asks us this question, What is the greatest problem your church has today? We answer that it is rapid growth. It is very difficult to keep up with the growth of the church in many lands. Close quote. It has been 150 years since the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was organized. Why does this church continue to flourish and grow so dramatically? In 1979, there were almost 200,000 convert baptisms in addition to the natural growth of the church. What distinguishes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from all others? We believe that we can answer this question more correctly than anyone else. Several characteristics are peculiar to our faith. Among them is its organizations with the prophets and apostles, who Paul said are the foundation of the Church, also the great order of lay priesthood leadership, the missionary system, the first quorum of the Seventy, the welfare program, the temples, the genealogical effort, and many other distinguishing features. There is, however, another reason for our growth which transcends all others. 
In an interview between the Prophet Joseph Smith and Martin Van Buren, then President of the United States, in 1839, the following was reported. In our interview with the President, he interrogated us wherein we differed in our religion from the other religions of the day. Brother Joseph said we differed in the mode of baptism and in the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. We considered that all other considerations were contained in the gift of the Holy Ghost. End of quote. One of the reasons the prophet's response was so inspired is that the right to enjoy the marvelous gifts of the Holy Ghost is conferred upon every member of this church soon after baptism. This is in fulfillment of the promise of the Savior. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. This powerful gift entitles the leaders and all worthy members of the Church to enjoy the gifts and companionship of the Holy Ghost. A member of the Godhead whose function is to inspire, reveal, and teach all things. The result of this endowment is that for 150 years the leadership and membership of the Church have enjoyed and now enjoy continuous revelation and inspiration directing them in what is right and good. Inspiration and revelation are so common, so widespread, so universal among the leaders and faithful members of this Church that there is a strong spiritual base underlying what is done. This can be found in the gatherings both large and small. Why does this Church grow and flourish? It does so because of divine direction to the leaders and members. This began in our day when God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith early in the spring of 1820. However, we claim that God's inspiration is not limited to the members of this Church. The First Presidency has stated, The great religious leaders of the world, such as Mohammed, Confucius, and the Reformers, as well as the philosophers, including Socrates, Plato's, and others, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God to enlighten whole nations and to bring a higher level of understanding to individuals. We believe that God has given and will give to all people sufficient knowledge to help them on their way to eternal salvation. We declare in all solemnity, however, we know salvation in the world to come is dependent upon accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One factor in personal revelation, one factor in salvation is personal revelation. Joseph Smith said, No man can receive the Holy Ghost without receiving revelations. The Holy Ghost is a revelator. Latter-day Saints, having received the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, are entitled to personal inspiration in the small events of life as well as when they are confronted with a giant Goliath of life. David, the youngest son of Jesse, a mere stout-hearted shepherd boy, volunteered to fight the giant Goliath. David and all of the army of Israel were insulted by the humiliating taunts of this formidable giant. David knew that inspiration had brought him to save Israel. King Saul was so impressed with the faith and determination of this young boy that he appointed David to fight Goliath. Goliath made sport of David's youth and lack of armament. David responded that he came in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, and that the whole assembly would learn that the Lord saveth not by the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's. Then David threw a rock in his sling with such force and accuracy that the stone sunk deep into the forehead of Goliath. Goliath fell to the earth a dying man, and the Philistines fled in fear. What has happened to David's living God? It is the greatest insult to reason to suggest that God, who spoke so freely to the prophets of the Old Testament, including Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, and the other prophets, now stands mute, uncommunicative, and silent. We may well ask, does God love us less than those led by the ancient prophets? Do we need his guidance and instruction less? Reason suggests this cannot be. 
Does he not care? Has he lost his voice? Has he gone on a permanent vacation? Does he sleep? The unreasonableness of each of these proposals is self-evident. As the Savior taught in the synagogue at Capernaum, he proclaimed his divinity in no uncertain terms. Following this, John states, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. We acknowledge and testify that the same witness of Christ's divinity as received by Peter is also our sacred knowledge. Personal revelation comes as a testimony of truth and as guidance in spiritual and temporal matters. The members of the Church know that the promptings of the Spirit may be received upon all facets of life, including daily ongoing decisions. How could anyone think of making an important decision such as, Who is to be my companion? What is my work to be? Where will I live? How will I live? Without seeking the inspiration of Almighty God. Many faithful Latter-day Saints have been warned by the Spirit to prevent injury or death. Among these was President Wilford Woodruff, who said, When I got back to winter quarters from the pioneer journey in 1847, President Young said to me, Brother Woodruff, I want you to take your wife and children and go to Boston and stay there until you can gather every saint of God in New England and Canada and send them up to Zion. I did as he told me. It took me two years to gather up everybody, and I brought up the rear with a company. There were about a hundred of them. We arrived at Pittsburgh one day at sundown. We did not want to go there, so I went to the first steamboat that was going to leave. I saw the captain engaged passage for us on that steamer. I had uh, just done so when the Spirit said to me, and that too very strongly, Don't go aboard that steamer nor your company. Of course, I went and spoke to the captain and told him that I had made up my mind to wait. Well, that ship started and had only got five miles down the river when it took fire, and three hundred persons were burned to death or drowned. If I had not obeyed that spirit and had gone on that steamer with the rest of the company, you can see what the result would have been." There are some guidelines and rules necessary to be the recipient of revelation and inspiration. They include, first, to honestly and sincerely try to keep God's commandment. Second, to be spiritually attuned as a receiver of a divine message. Third, to ask in humble, fervent prayer. And fourth, to seek with unfavoring faith. I testify that inspiration can be the spring of every person's hope, guidance, and strength. It is one of the magnificent treasures of life. It involves coming to the infinite knowledge of God. How does revelation and inspiration operate? Each person has a built-in receiving set which, when fine-tuned, can be a receiver of divine communications. Said Job, There is a spirit in man, and the Almighty gives them understanding. It is possible, like Nephi, to be led completely by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand that which should be done. How is inspiration received? Enos stated, And while I was struggling in the Spirit, behold, the voice of the Lord came into my mind. One does not necessarily hear an audible voice. The spirit of revelation comes by divine confirmation. I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart, says the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants. How was the voice of the Lord heard by Elijah the Tishbite? It was not the strong wind which rent the mountains and break in pieces the rock, nor after the wind an earthquake, nor after the earthquake a fire, it was a still, small voice. 
It is the inner voice of the Spirit which has the capacity to whisper through and pierce all things. Helaman says, It was not a voice of thunder, neither was it a voice of great tumultuous noise, but behold, it was a still voice of perfect mildness, as if it had been a whisper, and it did pierce even to the very soul. Thus the Lord by revelation brings into one's mind as though a voice were speaking. President Harold B. Lee gave this testimony. I have a believing heart because of the simple testimony that came when I was a child. I think maybe I was around 10, maybe 11 years of age. I was with my father out on the farm, away from our home, trying to spend the day busying myself until father was ready to go home. Over the fence from our place were some tumble-down sheds which had attracted a curious boy, adventurous as I was. I started to climb through the fence, and I heard a voice, as clearly as you are hearing mine, Don't go over there, calling me by name. I turned to look at Father to see if he were there talking to me, but he was way up on the other end of the field. There was no person in sight. I realized then as a child that there were persons beyond my sight, and I had heard a voice. And when I had heard and read these stories of the Prophet Joseph Smith, I too know what it means to hear a voice because I have heard from an unseen speaker. Although every faithful member of the Church is entitled to receive personal revelation, there is only one man upon the earth who receives revelation for the whole Church. Beginning with Joseph Smith, the prophet of the Restoration, there have been living oracles of God designated to communicate minute by minute, day by day, and hour by hour as needed to the leaders of the Church. President Wilford Woodruff, fourth president of the Church, said, The Church of God could not live 24 hours without revelation. Roy W. Doxey reminds us, Every day men and women come by revelation to understand the basic truth that God has restored his gospel upon the earth. Every day leaders of the Church are led by revelation to conduct the affairs of the Church, general and local, throughout the world. Every day Latter-day Saint missionaries are impressed by the spirit of revelation to bear witness, to know what to say, to know what to do, and to teach by the spirit of revelation. Every day the mind and the will of the Lord as revealed in the standard works of the Church are illuminated in the minds of Latter-day Saints by revelation. Every day faith is increased in the hearts of the faithful by evidences of revelation in their lives. In decisions made regarding marriage, vocations, home concerns, business ventures, lesson preparations, danger signals, in fact, in all facets of life. Every Latter-day Saint may know by the spirit of revelation that President Joseph Fielding Smith spoke the truth when he said, The Lord not only blesses the men who stand at the head and hold the keys of the kingdom, but he also blesses every faithful individual with the spirit of inspiration. Close quote. On June 1, 1978, one of the greatest revelations ever received in the history of the world came to mankind. It was revealed that all worthy brethren in the Church, regardless of color or race, could receive the priesthood. Who is the prophet of the world today? I testify that the prophet upon the face of the earth today is President Spencer W. Kimball. We desire our friends to know that every devoted person of any faith anywhere in the world who is obedient and righteous and who sincerely prays may receive answers and inspiration from God. We are certain that salvation in God's presence requires acceptance of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We bear solemn witness that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is God's Church upon the earth. Why has this Church grown so dramatically over these 150 years? Why does it continue to grow at an ever-increasing pace? It does so in large measure because of divine revelation and inspiration. I pray that we may so live as to enjoy the companionship of the Holy Ghost. For the Holy Ghost, under the direction of Almighty God, has led this people and its leaders 
for 150 years since its restoration, from its humble beginnings to the great spiritual force it is today. This is my prayer and testimony, which I leave in the sacred and holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.